0: This is the 343 Podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. Being a coach, administrator, trainer, or educator in youth soccer is a job just like any other. So why should anyone be expected to do it for free or for minimum wage? or for less than minimum wage for some reason that's the expectation in american youth soccer those who make money in youth soccer are often unnecessarily demonized but here's the thing nobody is getting rich off youth soccer sure some docs or executives might make six figures but why shouldn't they this certainly isn't the popular stance to take but the notion that no one should be making money off youth soccer is completely misguided. So today, Gary Kleiband and I discussed the issue and how it's linked to other popular talking points such as pay to play, promotion relegation, and the global soccer marketplace. If you have any questions about anything that we cover, please send them our way. We'd be happy to answer them in future episodes. And we'll get started with this conversation right after a quick message about our online coaching program thank you so much for listening and for being here with us today when it comes to coaching education being able to discern what will and won't help you can be costly and confusing the internet is flooded with so much information there are tons of drills out there for you to watch and tons of things that you can try with your players and teams but without the proper context and the proper guidance from a legit mentor You are not going to get the edge that you are looking for or the results that you want. That's what the 343 Premium Coaching Education Program gets right. It's rooted in the real experiences of a master practitioner that has coached soccer right here in America. As a coach, Brian Kleiben has been able to overcome all of the obstacles and produce college-level, professional, and international caliber players. Training just twice per week, kids missing practices, field congestion, pay-to-play, you name it. But using the 343 framework and staying consistent with the methodology has led to tremendous success. What the 343 coaching program offers you is a look at Brian's actual work, his real art. It's all captured and delivered to you in its purest form to help you gain an advantage and become a better coach. This exclusive online program features videos of Brian mic'd up during actual training sessions with his real players and teams as they prepare for league games and tournaments. This is the only program in the country that gives you this type of authentic, behind the curtain look at player, team, and coach development. It's unlike anything else in this country. It cannot be replicated and it's not theory or speculation like you'd see in a presentation or something staged like you'd get at a convention. So if you're looking for drills, we've got those, but more importantly, we have the mentorship, the proven results, and the community of ambitious coaches that you won't find anywhere else. To experience all of this, consider joining the 343 Premium Coaching Education Program. You can find all of the details at 343coaching.com. Well, I guess just, just in general, just, you know, people, in american soccer yeah they they think that everything should be done for either free or very cheap and they that that sentiment exists at basically every level to the to the extent where you know coaches are expected to be volunteers in youth soccer and then all the way to the professional level players are expected to you know play for a fraction of what their global peers are, are, you know, signing contracts for. So, I mean, it's from the bottom of the ladder all the way to the top that this, you know, making money off of, off of soccer in general is kind of frowned upon in, in, American soccer and, and then youth soccer specifically, I guess is where we can kind of start the conversation is that, yeah, no, nobody is supposedly allowed to be making money. And that seems to be very taboo for, a great number of people, a great percentage of people believe that. So maybe just some of your your general thoughts about the about the topic to start us off.
1: Yeah, I don't know where the concept originates from or where this attitude started. Perhaps, and I'm just speculating here, perhaps back in the day, 30, 40 years ago, there wasn't this club soccer ecosystem that exists today. It was quite predominantly AYSO. If you look at our earliest of uh, senior men's national team players, I think they had most of their youth careers in a YSO and then in high school, of course, which are all kind of free programs and not these, uh, as they call them, travel programs now uh, across the country. And then maybe around 20, 30 years ago, 25, 30 years ago, you know, the club soccer, travel soccer started coming onto the scene where it was more of a professionalized environment. and I'm saying professionalized in quotes relative to AYSO, which was a recreational by charter uh, sort of program. And, and also from a professionalized standpoint, you know, coaches were, were hired uh, by clubs to do what they do, to be trainers. And in AYSO, you know, I don't think coaches got paid at all or administrators got paid at all or very little, perhaps some just for expenses, things like that. So that's my speculation as to where a transition may have occurred. Uh, Somebody obviously is going to have to check me on that. But, you know, moving forward, you know, this has been more commercialized over the years to the point where we're at today, where it's quite standard. You know, if you want to play soccer at any sort of quote-unquote, competitive level, you don't play at AYSO. You don't play for a free program. You go and play for a club that charges training fees and and travels for competition and things of that nature. And these things cost money. You know, coaches are – People in the workforce and people in the workforce need to get paid. So that's an expense. Fields are expensive. You know, they're not free, especially if they're privately owned. Lights are not free. You have to pay for those. And you have a whole consortium of costs on the balance sheet that somehow you have to, you know, you have to have something on the revenue side. And that's where we're at, John. We have coaches who are being paid and I just don't understand why there's such a backlash against coaches being paid when they put in a tremendous amount of time, energy, and effort into their craft. And this is a craft, even a profession at times. I don't understand why there's an issue with them being paid. Yeah.
0: It's something that I've, I've personally experienced. I'm, I'm, I'm sure, you know, Brian's experienced it. I'm sure you experienced it when, when you had your, your coaching days too. But when, when people think that you just show up to the field and that's the only time that you're putting into into coaching, you know, for that hour and a half, two times per week, or or whatever your practice schedule is like, and then the hour or so that you're at your game, if if people believe that that's the only time that you're 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 dedicating to coaching, if you're doing a good job, then then that that notion completely wrong. I know, you know, I spent six seven hours per tr- like. Tr- per training session planning everything making sure everything went went well showed up early to practice made sure everything was laid out stayed late talked to parents was on the phone with parents till who knows when every night talking about their kids and what's best for them so it, it was way more than a part-time job even close to a full-time job and I was making you know pennies compared to you know what what some people were making and, and people still had a problem with me just making any money at all. And I, I really couldn't wrap my brain around it. And then the other side of that is that the expectations for me and for the team were astronomically high. So, you know, if we didn't perform well, then that also came back onto me. And if I wasn't dedicating even just the amount of time that I did, then it it would have been severely worse. So that that's always been, you know, in the back of, in the back of my mind when it comes to you know should youth coaches get paid or not or how much should they get paid how much time are we putting in and and all those sorts of things and I don't really know if parents understand it I don't know if they need to understand it I think they do but um, but then even even other coaches other coaches that want to take it easy and and they don't want to put in the amount of time that I was putting in or that other coaches put in you know they seem to uh, they seem to spout off um, kind of this hatred about you know youth coaches getting paid in, in, in soccer, and they help fuel that narrative to other parents and other clubs and administrators and whatnot. So it's kind of a weird dynamic, I guess.
1: No, 100%. And, and I think that's the biggest disconnect is the amount of time that coaches put into this. Coaches that are doing a good job, as you stated clearly. To put it in perspective, let's say if you have three youth teams that you're coaching, that's already a Super full load. You can't do more than that, in my opinion. And do anything uh, reasonably well. But if you have three youth teams, it's a full-time job. It truly is. If you're if you're doing a, a decent work, forty hours a week. And let's put a price tag on that. So, I would speculate, you know, from the unscientific polls that we've made in the past, John, about how much coaches are getting paid. You, you know, let's just make math simple. Maybe a thousand dollars a month per team. So you're making three thousand dollars a month uh, for coaching three teams and putting in forty hours of work a, a week. So you're making thirty-six thousand dollars a year uh, as a full-time worker. Uh, if you want to break that down, you're you're basically I don't know if it's minimum wage or less than minimum wage. I, I really don't don't know. But I hope people can appreciate you know the dedication that's involved in doing good work for these. Uh, young human beings, these kids. And, and that needs to be, your work needs to be rewarded or compensated in some sort of fashion. And the compensation, in my opinion, that currently exists in the marketplace is still substandard or still very low. Perhaps what what some are thinking about uh, when some are thinking about soccer, they don't look at it as a profession from a coaching standpoint. We'll get into other positions shortly. Um, they don't look at it as a profession. They look at it as something an adult should do on the side Uh, they should have their regular full-time job 40 hours a week nine to five maybe a desk job who knows and then after they get off of work maybe they should go to the fields and uh, and this is their uh social work right this is their volunteer work they're good for the community sort of work and they should just volunteer and be a coach there and put in additional 10 15 hours 20 hours a week for free or or for minimal. And and I just find it quite nonsensical to expect that of people. For example, Brian had had 40 hours a week. Brian put in way more than 40 hours a week. This guy had put in anywhere between 40 and 70 hours a week when he was a youth coach outside the MLS academies. And when he went to the MLS academies, I mean, he bled for those organizations. He bled for for chivas usa he bled for the galaxy and it was quite standard for him being working 70 80 hours a week there doing everything under the sun beyond coaching you know he was chief recruiter chief scout director organizing other coaches director of methodology uh, albeit informally he was teaching other coaches how to how to you know be better how to work as a collective recruiting other coaches, you know, scouting reports of other teams to get an advantage. I mean, this is no easy task.
0: There were two things that, that came to mind. I'll start with the first one. when We talked about like how much time you can put in before you start, before it starts to affect the quality of your work. And you mentioned, you know, coaching three teams seems to be like the, that moment where, it, you know, that's just, that's a full plate. And so I was thinking like, oh yeah, so three teams, if there's, you know, maybe fifteen players per team, okay, that's forty-five relationships with individual players and their families that you now have to maintain, which are that's a crucial piece of the puzzle that if you're not if you're not doing that properly, if you're not cultivating those relationships properly, that can ultimately hurt you as a coach. And so to put in the time to nurture 45 different relationships is incredibly hard. Like, you know, you think about trying to have to have just a relationship with your spouse or with your boyfriend or girlfriend or something like that. Like just one having that one relationship is hard. Now you have 45 to maintain and that's, you know, that's a big deal that I don't think gets talked about enough or appreciated enough.
1: Correct. Right. I mean, I mean, you have, you know, this, John, you're getting parents after practice before practice, uh, uh, before games after games. And then it, it doesn't, it's not left at the field. Then you get text messages from them, emails that sometimes are Shakespearean novels, you know, if they're not, if they're, if, if they're not satisfied with a particular thing um, and it's non-stop. It's not like you have a week in peace. You're getting multiple uh, communications from, from the parents and the families on a weekly basis and you can't just ignore it. You know, if you ignore it, then you know, that relationships that are souring and and a sour relationship within your team turns into a cancer for lack of a better word because you know it'll permeate to other families and then the whole thing can collapse under you so you have to keep up with these these sorts of stuff and 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 the management right the expectations like you mentioned before yeah thanks for bringing up the the relationship management piece that's that's enormous
0: the other thing I was thinking about as you were talking a moment ago was there there seems to be like a like a switch that happens where, you know, in, in youth soccer specifically, you know, getting paid is is frowned upon and, and it is, like you mentioned, looked at as a side job or like a hobby and, and you're expected to do that for free in your spare time and, and things like that. And then at some point there's like this great switch where I don't know if it happens at the junior college level or college or um the, the you know, the professional level, of course, but then, then it's like, it's okay to be a, a full-time employee in sports, but anything outside of that is like, uh, to some people, it is just, you know, the, the work of the devil, if you are getting paid and that, that transition into, into, you know, a full-time paid position has always been interesting to me. I've never personally been able to break that barrier. So I've always been on the, on the side where I've had to fight for every penny that I've earned and I've had to fight the, you know, the, the stereotype of, you know, this should be your side job. It always has been, you know, I've always had a a full-time job on the side. So, um, I say full-time job on the side because soccer is what I've dumped all of my time and energy into. And so I've always found a way to make money elsewhere in order to, to sustain my coaching habits. Um, but that 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 transition into, you know, what is actually okay to, to make money has always been very fascinating to me. And it's something I've always, uh, yeah' I've, I've just always been in the back of my mind.
1: Yeah, I don't know where it, it stands from. Again, speculation. But, you know, I, I, I tend to believe the following – if you're stuck in a nine to five desk job and you're not liking it, um, and you're seeing this coach, you know, having a full time job in soccer, it doesn't have to be a coach. It could be a director of coaching, you know, who doesn't actually have a team. Uh, it could be administrator, executives, or somebody who offers uh, products and services within the soccer sphere, a personal trainer, uh, things of that nature. I, I tend to think that they're looked at as, wow, they're having fun with their life, right? Because they're doing what they love, you know what I'm saying? And I'm stuck here as a as a lawyer, you know, doing all this lame paperwork. Uh, I might be getting paid uh, reasonably well in the high six figures, but I don't like my life. And I see this guy or this girl prancing around and kicking a soccer ball and, and with kids and laughing and enjoying things. And maybe, maybe that has something to do with it. You shouldn't be allowed to to live off of this, you know, and then it's demonized from that point forward. I, I, I kind of set, I'm not completely speculating. I mean, I've had, a, you know, 20 years on the sidelines to, to kind of engage with parents and families of all flavors And you know, I've gotten a taste of that, you know, explicitly and implicitly over the course of a a long time. So, call it maybe more of an educated guess versus speculation on my part that that might have something to do
0: with it. One thing that I I think is important to address is that, of course, there are people that do a bad job and give everybody that is trying to do a good job a bad a bad rep, but that exists also in, in law as well. So you mentioned lawyers, like there are very good lawyers. There are very good doctors. There are very good engineers in all these fields that take their job seriously, that put in 60, 70, 80 hours per week. And, and, you know, it, it is their life and there are other people that, that just cruise and, and that exists across all industries. And so uh, I think judging, judging, you know, soccer coaches, off of those people that just cruise or that, you know, do, you know, mediocre work, I think is not, um, yeah, not appropriate.
1: No, that's, that's crucial. That's a good point too. If you run across a coach or somebody in the soccer sphere, who's making a living off it and they're not very good at their job, uh, or or their body language or their demeanor is always, you know, just, Clocking in, clocking out, not putting in that extra time that we just finished discussing, John, at the at the beginning of the episode, where it's like you're really having good relationships with everybody. Uh, You're putting in the time outside of the field to to do your homework, right? So that the performance on the field is maximum. There's there's plenty of those bad apples, and if and if a parent you know comes across those bad apples, then they get a sour taste in their mouth, and then it's uh, quite justifiable for them to have this sentiment. It's like, why the heck is this guy making all this money uh, for just showing up, you know, two times a week and then a game on the weekends. That makes sense. That also makes sense to me. I
0: remember one summer where I, I, I didn't have, uh, I didn't have any tournament scheduled for one of my teams for like a month and a half. So I was just doing my, I was just doing my day job for like a month and a half. And I remember I vividly remember this actually, clocking out of work and not having to go to practice or not having anything else to do. And I hadn't experienced that feeling of, you know, clocking out in a long time because when you're coaching, like we kinda of talked about earlier, there's there is no there is no clocking out. Like you can get an email at ten PM and, and then you're up till midnight responding. So like there there is no clocking out from, from coaching if you're doing it well in my opinion. And yeah, I just remember how good that felt that for that month and a half to be able to clock out of work and just be able to go home and relax, but that was that was short lived.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, even the bad apples, if we call them that, uh, they should still get paid. I mean. In every industry, like you alluded to before, there are there people who just clock in, clock out, don't give a shit about their work, don't do great work, and that could be any profession: doctor, lawyer, engineer, architect, uh, contractor, you know, bricklayer, you name it. Um, but you know, if they're a bad apple, they're still getting paid. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and nobody's really uh, frowning upon those guys. Actually, sometimes we may even tend to make excuses for the bad apple saying, oh, well, they're not paid enough, so they don't give a shit, or, oh, their employer doesn't treat them well, so that's what their employer gets, you know, because sometimes there's demonizing of the employer as well, right, because the employer is probably making more money uh, and could spread more of the wealth. But, yeah, it's quite its quite intriguing, this whole dynamic that in youth sports, I don't think it's just soccer, John, but in youth sports in general, making a living off is is not looked at it as a positive thing or as a profession you know we can unless you have something else to add to the coaching front because we've been on the coaching uh train here we can extend it beyond the coaching uh, front to to other things like personal trainers or even now it's not unheard of for DOCs to be making quite a good living you know in the six figures or high six figures even of these of these clubs or, or or these mega clubs and you know I think we need to put into perspective that a director of coaching is in charge of is basically an executive of a multi-million dollar organization um, that has a lot of moving parts to it. It has a lot of employees, coaches, assistant coaches, uh, trainers. It has relationships with cities, uh, field providers, uh, suppliers of of gear um it has you know this this person also has to interface with the board of directors you know so there's a whole political component uh, he has to be accountable for budget um budgetary uh, matters i mean this is a serious job and if you're in charge of a club that has uh, 10,000 players uh, I don't see it being an issue for this person being compensated appropriately and, and making a six figure salary. Um, but again, they're also demonized and looked at as the devil.
0: Even if a club is smaller, even if, if a club is, you know, 500 players or, or 1,000 players, you know, maybe we're talking 10, 15, 20 teams. Well, that's. Agreed, agreed. That's, You're right. It's. um. It's the same thing talking about the coach that that has three teams where you have 45 relationships to maintain. Okay. So the executive or the director of coaching, if, if they are doing their job well, then you don't only have the the relationships with your coaches, but then you have the relationships with the assistant coaches, with the actual players, with even more families, with the rest of the executive board, with the, the community members and those types of things. So now you're, you're talking about nurturing possibly hundreds of relationships, If doing your job well, while still, you know, finding time to educate people, attend games, show face, all these other things. And and if you're expecting somebody to do all that stuff for free, um, I would say that you should also expect a low quality of work. then if you want somebody that's going to put in the the appropriate amount of of hours and to do it well, then the person, in my opinion, should be uh, (laughs) compensated very handsomely is the way I kind of think about it.
1: No, there's no question. There's no question.
0: Maybe I, I can ask you this. Outside of DOCs, are you aware of anybody else, like executives or board members, or anybody in youth soccer that's you know making money? I, d- DOCs se- seem to always pop up as the people that are making yeah five figures, six figures, you know, d- you know, doing significantly better than a lot of coaches. But outside of DOCs, I don't really hear too much about board members or other executives making any type of money.
1: The generally true statement is that board members are more on the volunteer side of the equation, but that's not necessarily always the case. There's always a little bit of allocation of funds to compensate them as well. And then there are, there are, there are ways to go about compensating them, if not on a salary basis, on a sort of side gig basis. So, for example, a long time ago, the president of of a tiny club that we used to participate in over here in Orange County, you know, he would, uh, or the board would allocate, you know, a big chunk of cash. You know, it was like 30, $40,000 for him to be quote unquote, the lead of our um, club soccer tournament. You know, we would host the tournament and he would be the focal point of that. And for being the focal point, you know, he would get his, $40,000 one-time pay, you know, and, but again, we would have two of those, um, throughout the year. So that's a, a a fairly big chunk of change for, for a board member.
0: It reminded me that a lot of people have, you know, during this argument of, you know, it should be volunteer, blah, 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 blah. They've really tried to point at the fact that the U S soccer president position is a volunteer position. And I've seen people use that as a way to like you know if the president of U.S. Soccer is volunteering then why are you you know expecting any type of money too? And I I, I think that a f- few years ago it came to my attention that yeah you know, Sunil Gulati was making hundreds of thousands of dollars in other in other arenas other areas you know through endorsements or through representing Concacaf uh, as as a Concacaf board member he that was a paid position so his his president role unlocked other avenues for him to acquire money and then also power as well um which is kind of cyclical then then you accumulate more power and then more money and blah 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 blah, blah. but um i don't know if people if people even know that 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 exists
1: um yeah once you get to the once you get started in once you get to those levels you don't have to have a salary have you ever heard of the CEOs of these mega corporations uh, having a salary of one dollar a year—you yeah. ever heard that done? Yeah. So, okay, so <laughs> I mean, that's not where your 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 money or your power is derived from—is your salary? That's that's us, the lowly proletariat way of thinking, you know, oh how do you make money? Well you have to have a job. Okay, great. But once you get to those levels, I mean there's speaking engagements. There's it's more of a quid pro quo sort of thing where, hey, you do this role as let's say US soccer president, and then I know that you have ownership in this travel company or I know that you have ownership in these other uh, corporations, you know, uh, stat- statistics, uh, um, moneyball type of company, that the GPS tracker type company or whatever it is, John. Uh, and then, hey, you're going to work for free, quote unquote, as the U.S. soccer president, but it's your travel company that's going to get the the contracts to provide travel for MLS and for the national team and for the Development Academy and for, I mean, I'm not saying these things are facts. I, I'm giving an example here, right? Uh, and that's how you enrich yourself. It's
0: just something that I I, I don't know if, if people at scale pay attention to or are aware of, which is, it, it. again, it makes, and that makes it hard to talk about because if they've already been, you know, kind of coerced into believing that nobody should be making money and they're not fully aware of of all these other avenues or all these other things that are happening in the market, then it, it makes it hard to have a conversation about it. I don't know. That's kind of how I feel.
1: Sure. Sure.
0: What about, um, well, let me, let me back up and and kind of take us back to the beginning of, of the conversation because you mentioned, you know, for years and years and years, AYSO seemed to be, you know, the standard and that's was, across the nation where everybody seemed to be playing. we, we for a long time uh, were selecting national team players that were coming out of AYSO programs. That's where they, they were developed. That's where they spent most of their youth careers. And then you know club soccer came in and, and kind of changed the landscape where this pay to play mechanism entered the, entered the scene. And now pay to play seems to be pretty standard across the board. But in recent years, there's been a, a lot of backlash towards pay to play that really came to light in the most recent presidential, USSF presidential election, where pay to play seemed to be a, a talking point for most of the candidates that were running for U.S. soccer president, and it really st- started to s- stimulate a conversation around pay to play but as people talked about it, again, they didn't seem to have the necessary information to place pay-to-play in the proper context. As You know, it's not, just, it's, it's not just as simple as soccer should be free or you need to pay this amount of money and this is what you get. There's so many other moving parts to it. And for people to think that pay-to-play should not exist, I think, is a little bit misguided. So I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on on pay-to-play.
1: Yeah, it's tremendously misguided. You offer a service, you offer a product. It costs money to offer a service and a product. You need something on the revenue side of the equation. <laughs> I mean, it, it should be pretty straightforward, right? I, I, I don't understand this whole notion of the elimination of pay-to-play I think it is tremendously misguided. You cannot eliminate pay to play any more than you, than you can eliminate paying your plumber for coming over here and, you know, fixing your pipes. It's just, the whole thing is absurd to me. I know there's a lot of well-intentioned people, uh, myself included, have said, you know, what, what pay to play has created in our country is, is this big filter for low income or big uh, barrier for low income families who now can't participate in the mainstream um, soccer e- ecosystem here. They can't have their kids playing for in a competitive environment necessarily because if they have to pay 1000 thousand, two thousand, five thousand, seven thousand $2,000, 5000 $7,000 a year, it's just that is, you, they can't do it. And if that's the situation, then we're filtering out a lot of talent and a lot of potential talent from our player pools if now we want to take the conversation towards why is soccer not uh, great here in the united states and so that line of thinking is quite correct you know we are basically economically discriminating against certain demographics but the solution isn't the elimination of pay-to-play you can't get rid of that you know you know, if you want a nice house, you know, well, there's obviously the barrier that a nice house costs a million dollars. Well, all these um, unfortunate, you know, families of low socioeconomic status are never going to buy a million dollar home. You know, so what do we do? do we need to reduce that million dollar home to zero or to $10,000. What do we, I mean, the whole discussion is quite nonsensical, John. I don't know where else to take it from there aside from. Some may point to the rest of the world and how in the rest of the world, you don't have these, quote unquote, exorbitant fees to play competitive um, soccer. And in the rest of the world, well, they have a little something called promotion and relegation, where every, where, every, where every club has a first team associated with it. And that first team, while it might not be in the major league or the first division, it may be in the second, it may be in the third division, it may be in the fourth tier, maybe may be in the fifth tier. Uh, But nonetheless, they have a first team there. And so now all of a sudden, the business model gets altered a little bit, whereby you don't want to filter out great talent via economics at the youth level. If you have good talent available, you want to be able to bring them in for free, right? Um, Because that special talent Can turn into, is now an investment that can turn into a revenue later down the road, whether that be by playing on your first team, and then your first team gets ticket sales and all that comes with that, or that talent gets developed and then gets sold to a higher level club, and then you get revenue from that. So the dynamics are quite different uh, overseas, and the dynamics of field costs. You know, and things of that nature on the cost side of the balance sheet are also different than they are here in the United States. But if you want to ameliorate how much it costs to play youth soccer here, well, we need promotion and relegation, and that's a whole other episode into and of itself. But I think I made at least the superficial case as to as to why it matters.
0: The, well, the incentives are different. The incentives for a, a, a club somewhere else in the world. To go out into you know sc- you know scour the neighborhoods for you know the best the best players in all these neighborhoods are much different than the the you know your standard American club that is operating in a you know the pay to play environment. So you know for Barcelona to go and, and scour their city and look for the best of the best player, it makes sense for them to do that, and it makes sense for them to bring the player in on a scholarship. It makes sense for them to. Uh, try to nurture that player and cultivate that player's talent because someday they could make it to their first team or they sell the player to another, another club and, and make money off the player. And that doesn't exist in the United States at scale. There are, you know, major league soccer teams that are now doing that, but that's a very insulated environment and they're doing it. Um, Hmm. I'm trying to figure out the right way to say it. Um, they're allowing themselves. They're allowed to do it, but they're not allowing anybody else to participate in the global market the way that they are. They've set up the the situation so that they can capitalize on those types of deals, but nobody else is really allowed to in American soccer. And you could cite uh, like the DeAndre Yedlin case, where Crossfire tried to try to recoup money. Uh, there's a couple other cases like that, and, and Major League Soccer denying. The opportunity and, and U.S. soccer uh, also denying the opportunity for those funds to be uh, reallocated back into a you know what is traditionally thought of as a youth soccer club and nothing more, and and that that stigma seems to be part of the the conversation as well. Like you know these are youth soccer clubs, these are youth soccer coaches, these are youth soccer players, and the word youth is almost used. Uh, in a negative way, kind of like how some people see recreational, but the word just youth seems to uh, be like you said earlier, kind of like demonized. They like they're not allowed to to participate in that money making market,
1: right? And if they're not allowed to participate in that money making market, well, where do they make up the money uh, for their balance sheets? They have to charge they have to charge parents, and that is the business model here. They have to charge parents again because. They're not allowed to participate in the broader uh, or have a broader share uh, of the ecosystem. So parents, parents, you are being taxed because there's no promotion relegation in this country. Just keep that in mind.
0: Yeah, when we were talking a moment ago about it being misguided when people talk about eliminating pay to play, it's just they they just need to divert the attention away from you know the nasty phrase that is pay to play and and just really you know take a. a one step deeper into that, the reason why that pay to play exists at scale, which we just kind of mentioned is, is the fact that the clubs are not operating the same way as our global counterparts, we're not operating the same way as Barcelona, we're not operating the same way as Arsenal, and those types of things. So to expect the same results, uh, while not operating in the ways that they have um, is, yeah, like you said, nonsensical.
1: Another thing, John, is pay-to-play doesn't go away overseas either. I mean, people are still paying to to be on a team overseas in Europe and South America, elsewhere. It's just scaled. You know, the cost is scaled differently. Um, They don't pay as much, I guess you would say. Uh, Although I haven't done the calculations, right, because overseas they don't make as much. Families don't make as much either, you know, so maybe – uh, if you scale it, maybe the scaling, um, translates for what, what I mean by that. I'm saying, for example, if you're making $50,000, uh, let's say you're making a hundred thousand dollars a year here in the United States and you're paying $2,000 a year for your kid to play club soccer. So 2% of your salary is going to, uh, your kid playing club soccer. Well, overseas people aren't making a hundred thousand dollars a year. Maybe they're making, I don't know, $25,000 a year. Well, what's two percent of twenty five thousand? You know, and you do that calculation. Whatever, is seven hundred fifty bucks or something like that. Maybe they're paying seven hundred fifty bucks a year. It's five hundred. Sorry, five hundred bucks a year to play soccer overseas. Maybe they are. Maybe they aren't. Maybe they're just paying two hundred dollars a year. I don't know. You know, but my point here is, you don't get rid of pay to play. That that's not going to happen. It makes Zero economic sense um, to think otherwise. The other thing I wanted to mention, John, is overseas, since we have this whole pipe, there isn't a, this delineation between youth and pro soccer overseas and Surly. Every club kind of has their own first team for the most part. Is imagine you're a family or you're a player who goes through that whole system and you end up playing for the first team one day. Um, and then maybe even moving on to bigger and better clubs or whatever. Well, you never forget your home club because there's this familial community aspect to it um, instead of this purely commercial enterprise. So when you retire as a player, it's, it's, you know, fairly regular for that player to come back to their home club and become a youth coach there um, and not really charge all that much if anything it's kind now becomes a sort of thing of wanting to give back wanting to volunteer um uh, to coach you know but that guy isn't then going to go coach not at his home club at another club for free if that makes sense i'm trying to i'm trying to draw this picture where Since overseas, there are, quote unquote, real clubs, you know, where you feel that you are a part of something and not just a transactional uh, relationship like it is here in the United States. Then that community feel uh, makes it more palatable to to volunteer or to not charge as much.
0: I'm thinking of the example of, of Zlatan's youth club. When they they just recently put up a statue of him, and how the, the whole community in Sweden was there, and it was like kind of like a celebration and, and whatnot. But yeah, going all the way back to his roots, where I can't think of one example of a youth soccer club in the United States erecting a statue over over one of their players. Like I can imagine that you know Clint Dempsey would get a statue, or Landon Donovan would get a statue, or Eric Wendalda would get a statue somewhere, because uh, there's no real connection to wherever wherever they played their youth soccer.
1: I don't think it's happened in our country, but uh, I don't know, and I and I definitely don't want to see a Landon Donovan statue. <laughs>
0: yeah, very true. Um, I Real quick before before we, I want I want to move on to the online soccer education component because I do think that is something that again is misguided and, and misunderstood. Uh, but before before we do that, I, I just want to mention something I wrote down. You said. That if a family or if a parent is paying two thousand dollars per year to have their son or daughter play club soccer, and yeah, if they're making a hundred thousand dollars, if they're paying two uh, percent of that, you know, that's a pretty substantial investment year after year, uh, you know, for let's say eight to ten years of their their child's life, maybe. And the thought that I wrote down is, and this is something we talked about in another episode, but is, is somebody like Arthur Blank investing 2% of his annual salary into his franchise, like Atlanta United? And then what, what is that number like? And so I guess what I'm trying to say is that parents and, and also coaches and, and other people in the American soccer environment are indeed investing a significant amount of money into the American soccer environment. And just because the dollar, the actual dollar amount, $2,000, isn't $2 million or $2 billion doesn't make it any less uh, significant. And and people get kind of wooed by, you know, an MLS franchise costing $200 million. But in perspective, it's actually, you know, a a pretty – minimal amount when you consider the, the owners or multiple owners, um, you know, profile of, of businesses and net worth and everything. So that was something I wrote down and wanted to mention.
1: No, hundred percent. I, I, I really, that's another narrative that needs to be squashed at some point. I don't know how long it's going to take, but this whole notion that, Oh my God, these owners pay $200 million. Like, Oh gee, Louise, you know, we need to protect them. Thank you so much. you know, these guys are multi-billionaires, and sometimes it's not directly out of their own pocket. You know, they form investor groups, so it's not like one person is investing two hundred million. That's point number one. And two, relative to their net worth, they're basically investing less than uh, a family is investing in in paying for their kids' soccer.
0: Yeah, I, I guess parents should feel more ownership, and not having the club aspect the real club aspect like Europe has or South America has i don't know if parents really feel like they're investing in something other than their child but they're not investing in a in a club like you know uh, barcelona would or or something like that or if you know a family or a player or coach would be investing in in those types of things and i really think that if that were to change if people were to think about it differently where they are investing in a in a, an actual club or a community we, the conversation might look to, or sound different,
1: right? Right. Yeah. Correct. Well, they will, for for one thing, again, here we go again. Promotion relegation. If the club had a first team and it wasn't strictly a youth team, you know, the club can also uh, create a storyline, a believable storyline that that's rooted in fact. Okay, that your club fees for your kid to play here, uh, a certain percentage of that is allocated to developing our first team. Do you want your first team to get promoted? Do you want us to amplify our stadium that you come to every weekend, you know, uh, with your family too, uh, and it seats, you know, 3000 people where we want to, we want to build it, you know, to 7,000 people, uh, stadium and make a better weekend environment for our first team. And for you guys, you know, who live here in the community, then I think you're spot on John. The, the, the shift in what you're paying for, um, happens.
0: Okay. Um, let's, I guess, move on and, and, and discuss the, the online education arena or, the, or, you know, making, making money on soccer in different ways. So maybe ways that people don't even, even traditionally think of, you know, making money off of soccer, which you mentioned earlier that we have pr- online programs where we educate coaches and we charge a fee and people historically, uh, I would say overwhelming majority enjoy that experience and have no problem with that. But then there are these groups of people that, again, demonize any sort of, you know, financial transaction <laughs> revolving around youth soccer. And then specifically, you know, what we've seen and experiences is that people do not Um, approve of us, you know, charging any amount of money in exchange for education or a product. So um, maybe just your, your general thoughts on, on that. Like what's, what's on your mind when it comes to that?
1: I mean, I think it's, I mean, it's the same rationale as what we just finished discussing regarding coaching and DOCs and other positions. You know, you're, you're working your ass off to, to build a product and provide a service It it costs money, it takes time, it saps energy, and, you know, this is what an economy is all about. You know, there needs to be some sort of compensation or some sort of relationship between uh, provider and receiver there. It's very, it's so hard for me to wrap my head around how could somebody expect another human being to work for free? You know, that's basically saying, hey, I want slavery again or something. You know, I don't go to whoever has an issue with with this sort of commercialization of a product or a service. You know, I'd like to ask them the question of like, hey, why do you collect a salary from whatever employer you're you're with? You know, why don't you just go to your employer tomorrow and say, hey, listen, man, I know what we're doing is something good for the world, even if it's making, I don't know, straws or tables or chairs or anything. These are all useful things to the world. Hey, employer, don't pay me my salary anymore. I'm going to go ahead and, and come in every day, work my ass off, and I'm just going to do it for free out of the goodness of my heart because I know that we're moving humanity one tick, one millimeter forward in the positive direction. It comes down to that, John. I don't know what else to say it's everybody else should go work for free then also.
0: I'll admit that as a, you know, a teenager with my first job, I, I'm actually thankful I got exposed to this at such a young age. Uh, My first job was at a YMCA and I made minimum wage and I knew that all of my, my colleagues were, were not making an exorbitant amount of money. And at one point I, I found out that the CEO of, of our specific location you know, had a, had a car that was provided to them for free for, um, you know, as being part of the, part of the job. And so at first I questioned that I was like, well, you know, why, why are we all working for minimum wage? And then the CEO gets a free car and we're working at a YMCA, we should be giving that money, you know, you know, back to the community. And it took me a long, not a long time actually, but it's a pretty, pretty significant amount of time to understand that Yeah, the the trade-off to get this person probably at the salary that they were making and investing the 60, 70 hours a week that they were putting in as a CEO and a community member that was out in public, you know, six days a week with very, you know, very high profile in the community, um, you know, in order to lure them into doing that job to the best of their ability, having a, a deal with the local car dealership that where they provide a car for them is, you know, very reasonable. And, and once I kind of came to terms with that, I started to think about the other, the other things, like all the soccer related stuff and, and that, uh, yeah, like I said, I was just very, I'm very fortunate that I got exposed to that at 18 years old because it changed how I thought about it.
1: Yeah. And listen, this is not to say that there should be no such thing as, as volunteer work. Of course, you know, if, if you're somebody who has, extra time or wants to make extra time and go out into the world and volunteer and go to the soup kitchen, you know, or, you know, go, I don't know, uh, construct a home, you know, in conjunction with others, you know, for, for families in need, anything, things of that nature, of course, there's room for volunteer work and you should volunteer. It, It is a, a good thing to do. Um, I just don't understand, you know, what I just finished and you just finished describing. You know, some things are volunteer and some things aren't volunteer. And, and I, don't, I, I see room for both in the world. I, I want to classify something or, or make a little caveat that sometimes even if it's not volunteer work, you should work for free. So, for example, if you want an opportunity maybe in a new field. Um, let's say I wanted to go into, you know, biotechnology, John. Okay. Uh, my background's not in biotechnology. It's in a separate technical area. Uh, I'm not going to go into a biotech firm and demand a large salary or anything of that nature. I would be more than willing to, if I could, economically speaking, go and say, hey, I just want to come here and learn. You know, I want to help out. You know, I will work for free or I work for minimum ra- wage as a way of getting your foot in the door, does that make sense? And then acquiring experience there and then, okay, then fine. I'm going to start charging for, for the fruits of my labor. But when you don't have um, maybe experience in in a certain realm, then yeah, that, that could be used as a technique or a tactic that makes sense to expose yourself to, to a new profession. You know, it goes back to this quote, that sticks in my mind. I don't remember how long ago I heard of it. Uh, I think it was from Warren Buffett. He gets hit up regularly, as you can imagine, uh, by people who want to work for him um, or gain experience in his firm. And he at one point said, you know, he had this this young person come up to him and said, hey, Warren, I'll work for you for free. You know, I just want this experience or whatever. And he's like, you want to work for me for free? Son, that's too expensive, you know? Um, And what he meant by that is that a guy like Warren Buffett is so, so busy um, eh, uh, with his own stuff that he can't take on somebody as an apprentice, even if it's for free, because you still have to allocate a whole bunch of time, energy, and effort um, to that person. The reason I bring this up is it seems like we've been talking about youth soccer coaching, but even media members uh, sometimes. I'm trying to draw the connection here, John, with what I just said with with media. I don't know if you've seen it, but a lot of media outlets sometimes play this angle of, "Hey, you know, write for us or produce content for us, and what you're going to get in exchange is exposure." You know, there's no. There's no monetary compensation, but there's exposure. And then once you get to a certain level of exposure, you know, of course, we can bring you on as a hired writer or that exposure may produce other opportunities for you elsewhere uh, via other employers and media members, established reporters who are making a living off of writing about soccer, you know, backlash against uh, media outlets that we're offering these free exposure compensating positions. So they seem to appreciate very much that you should be paid to participate in the soccer ecosystem.
0: Yeah. That, that, that sentiment exists across many industries. I'm more exposed to this type of stuff just based on my previous employers, but you know, photography people, professional photographers hate the fact that, um, you know, somebody will offer their services for free when, you know, they've invested thousands of dollars in equipment and years and years, decades worth of, of learning, learning their, their trade. And then here comes somebody, you know, that bought a camera at Costco two weeks ago and they're like, Oh yeah, I'll shoot your wedding for free. And and, you know, all of a sudden this person's life work is life's work is, is in limbo. So,
1: yeah. So, so, so two points I was trying to make also is one is the same reporters, who get paid to do what they do, sometimes they also jump on the bandwagon and demonize uh, coaches or DOCs or this whole pay to play ecosystem. You know what I'm saying? When they, in fact, are participants, you know, and they're getting paid to participate in the soccer ecosystem, one. And two, um, I see this as quite a bit of an insecurity on their part um, in backlashing against their media outlets uh, offering these free positions, free writing positions because if people are willing to write for free or produce content for free, then what does that mean about their own job security? Yeah. You follow me? I do. And so, <laughs> and so it's not that they're, I, I don't think that it's that they're fighting for the writer, the writer should get paid sort of thing. Good, Good inclination. It's more of a job security sort of thing oh my god these corporations are evil they shouldn't be offering these sorts of uh, free writing positions because there is because there is validity john hey if i want to break into the soccer writing scene and i have i nobody's given me a platform what am i going to do Start a blog you know from ground zero uh, and, and not make any money for 10 years until somebody maybe notices me or something. No, I, I would love to go to sports illustrator. I would love to go to any one of these outlets and a hundred percent. I'm willing to write for free, you know what I'm saying? And prove my worth. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that.
0: Well, that resonates with me. I don't know if, if people that are listening to this podcast are familiar with the very beginnings of this podcast, but that's, pretty much what I did with, with your company. People ask me all the time, like, you know, how did you get to become, you know, the host of the three, four, three podcast. And I was like, well, I had recorded a couple episodes and then all of a sudden I just started calling it the three, four, three podcast. And, and he never said, he never said change it back. So I just ran with it. And, and, you know, one episode every couple months turned into one a month and then once a week and twice a week. And, and it just grew and grew and grew. To the point where where we are now, so you know the 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 work for free aspect resonates with me because it's definitely part of my story.
1: And a lot of us have those origin stories, John. Like I work for free as Brian's assistant coach, you know, for ten fucking years for free. You know, uh, volunteer. I, I go to my full time job. I go to my class because I was doing graduate work while I was working full time as an engineer, and then. Uh, you know, somewhere in between, I'd squeeze in going to practice. And obviously on the weekends, I'd be going to games. And then out, off the field, strategy sessions with Brian. Who should we recruit? How should we recruit him? Can we recruit them? I mean, for 10 years, John, for free, all of this stuff. And if I look at Brian's origin story as well, you know, he would coach in a pay-to-play club. He wasn't even getting a thousand bucks a team. He was getting way less than a thousand bucks a team. And he would even sacrifice salary. He would go to the club and say, I want this player to come and play on my team, but he can't pay low income family. Can't, he just can't pay. And then the club would tell him, okay, well, if you do that, then we have to lop off X amount of dollars from your, from your salary. And Brian would do it, you know, and that is a decade's worth of sacrifice of working for free or very, very abysmal pennies uh, in order to get to a point where maybe you're a little bit healthier than that. Um, so so again, to anybody who maybe has an issue with coaches making money or people who make products and services, uh, charging uh, for the products and services, understand that there's an origin story there as well and then start from ground zero, pay me sort of thing. Yeah,
0: and it's, it's, it's an important point to make. It really is.
1: That's all I got, dude. I, I I hope I hope we've communicated it fairly well. And and as you always do, I'd like to entice people to please send us feedback. Um, if there's a hole in our rationale, I would love to hear it. Um, or if you agree, or you want to add a little bit something more, or add your personal experience to it. Um, please share that as well, and we'll try to address everything.
0: Yeah, and people can—I mean—hit us up on social media if they want. They can go to the uh, the actual website, and they can leave you know unfiltered comments in in the comment section there, where you know there's not a, a 280 character limit. So, or send us an email, whatever. But we we'd love to hear from people.
1: No, and by the way, and this is not. Everybody should know that I'm hardly ever promoting our products, which is probably a flaw on my end. I should be out there really pumping our products, um, but I hardly ever do. The way we priced it was outrageously low, too, especially if you compare it to uh, U.S. soccer licensing courses. Uh, What we've done is just unheard of uh, as to our price point
0: people have to think about the entire ecosystem to really appreciate that low price, but it, it's not that we need to ask them or beg them to think about it outside of no, that context. No, so that's, and that's no. part of the, it's part of the thing is like, if we don't, if we don't pump our product uh, like other people do, then that's in our opinion, that's okay. And, and there's plenty of people that have told us, you know, over the course of many years that, you know, the product is, is great and they have no problem with it. So, I think those are the those are the ones we yeah those are the ones we cater to. They're they're the they're the ones that are finding value in it for for themselves, which is you know that's good.
1: No, it's quite wild. And not to end on a, on a sour type note or whatever, it's quite wild. When we when we first launched our product, we had this um, a, a whole bunch of people signed up. It was incredible to see. Uh, it was just kind of a testament to everything that we had been offering you know, for free, because we never charged any, a penny. And, and it was a great feeling because it, it felt like there was this reciprocity associated with it where a lot of people were thanking us for, for offering, you know, more detail uh, regarding the met- coaching methodology and our experience and all that other stuff. But there's always, you know, a, a group that, this group that wants to demonize you, like we've been discussing on the, on the episode, And it's very interesting to see them originally demonize you. And then not too long later, a year later or something, they turn around and start selling their own, or building and selling their own eBooks and their own products and services and their own personal training things. When they were always this, these advocates of everything should be for free and should be making money off of soccer. You know, they would turn around and do it themselves and, and, i think they discovered it's not as easy as they thought and then when it didn't work out for them again they turn around and demonize so anyways a little bit a a little shout out to to all you peeps out there who i know you listen to us that's that one's for you
0: (laughs) all right uh nothing else then that we're we're done on (laughs) we're done on today's episode
1: Beautiful. We ended on a high note. I love it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Perfect. But that's,
1: but that's how we roll, right? That's, that's what we do.
0: Yep, exactly. Our flagship program helps coaches and trainers discern what is good for their teams and for their players. But now we've created a program for parents. Because parents, you are personal trainers too. Yep, that's right. And in order to properly mentor your player... You need to know what's good and what's not. Just like coaches, you and your player are flooded with thousands of training videos on YouTube and Instagram, but most of them are a waste of time because they aren't relevant. They don't translate to the real game. And figuring out what does and what doesn't and why is just flat out difficult, especially if you don't have a background in soccer to lean on. So, we've taken Brian Kleiban's more than 20 years of experience working with teams and individual players, from U9 to U19, and extracted valuable lessons that can help you navigate the minefield that is American youth soccer. But this isn't just about drills. That's only a small fraction of it. And to be honest, you can get drills anywhere. What you're getting with the 343 Masterclass are the cultural lessons and an education in philosophy that other trainers and courses don't offer. It's these elements that can help you understand the landscape, read the game on and off the field, and translate everything into real development for your player. Right now, you can get on the list for the 343 Masterclass. We're currently rolling it out little by little to small groups. To reserve your spot, go to 343masterclass.com. All right. Thank you for listening. Do you have a question about the topic that we covered in this episode? If so, we'd love to hear from you and we will be answering some of your questions at the end of next week's episode. Submit your questions on Twitter or head to 343coaching.com to leave your question in the comment section. Make sure that you are subscribed to 343FM on your favorite podcasting app. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and many more platforms. And if you're feeling super generous, we'd love it if you dropped us a five-star rating or a review. And don't forget that you can find our entire library of podcast episodes, over 200 written articles, and our online courses that help accelerate the development of coaches and players using methods that have been proven to work here in the United States. Once again, All of that can be found at 343coaching.com. All right. Thank you so much for listening. We will catch you next time here on the 343 Podcast.